my first, my first attempt at uh, water skiing was successful. Is it okay to brag in church? It was years ago, many, many years ago. I was 15 years old. I was out with friends on a lake in a boat, and I got up out of the water and skied around the lake, much to my delight. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it, but I noticed that those that occupied the boat with me, my friends, that some of them were skiing on one ski. And I thought, you know, I need to ski on one ski. And they told me, the guys in the boat, they said, you should wait, you know, wait a little bit. And I said, later today, you know, like, like a year or so, you know, after you've gotten used to two or whatever. But I wanted, uh, patience is not a virtue of mine and not one that I possess anyway. And I wanted to learn to ski on one. And I tried, but I couldn't get up out of the water. It was very, very frustrating for me. And I, when I was later in the boat, I noticed that there was a little button that said power tilt. And I don't know much about boats or engines, but I knew that that button, it just sounded good. It sounded like it could do something for me. So I requested uh, myself back in the water on one ski, and I requested that they push the power tilt button. And they did. And let me tell you, getting up out of the water was not the issue. Survival was. And I was gesturing wildly to the friends in the boat. Uh, they thought I was saying, go faster, faster is fun or something like that. We should have had thought out, prearranged sig signals with our hands. But they thought I was saying go faster. Of course, I should have let go of the rope. That thought never occurred to me. And I just kept going. And then I took a hard fall on one side of my body. And that whole weekend at the lake house, I couldn't smile with half of my face. And I want to talk to you this morning about power in your life. Power or lack thereof. And living life, living a spiritual life following Jesus in your own effort is like trying to water ski on one ski behind a rowboat. And what you need is an engine, you need a boat, you need something to pull you with power. You need a power tilt button. And when Jesus came, he told those early followers of him who were frightened, they uh, seemingly were left alone without him. He promised his spirit and he said that, what, that you are to wait on me, Acts, and you will receive power when you wait on me. And it'll be the source of your, it'll be your sustenance for living. It's what you will draw on through good times, through hard times, through everything, through every messy season, every glorious endeavor. I will give you power. But I wonder if you feel power in your life. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe you feel like you can't get up and you can't uh, move through life. You don't have uh, the wind at your sails, to sort of speak. You don't have something to pull you. No gravity moving you. You don't feel powerful. And when we study this book of Galatians, as we round toward home and even head toward Easter in a few weeks, I want to point you to your power source and to mine. But too often, it's dormant. It's lying wasted in our life. Doesn't matter if you're on staff. Doesn't matter if you've been to church all your life. Doesn't matter if you're a leader here. You could be the one preaching the sermon. In fact, many ministers fall for the perils of professional Christianity. They talk about God publicly, but don't experience him personally. There's no power source in their lives. So today I want you to turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, we are in a moment, going to put it up on the screen, and in a moment we're going to read verses 16 to 26 of Galatians 5. It's going to be good. It's, um, we, we made reference to it last week. I'll read it from the screen along with you. Let's go ahead and dive in. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. This is what we've been talking about these weeks in Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident. You could put these on a poster and go outside and be a mean street preacher. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's confusing. It came up in our small group Wednesday night and we tried to clarify. But the fruit of the Spirit, I like this, you do too, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Men, that's a good trait, trust me. Self-control. Against such there is no law. Tongue-in-cheek there from Paul. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's hearkening back to Galatians 2.20. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. There is this life in the flesh. And Paul is doing what a good leader does. He's warning these early followers of Jesus. Man, I'm not worth my salt if I just, uh, every Sunday, every weekend, if we just try to make you feel good about yourself and give you a TED Talk. Not against TED Talks, I've been inspired by them. But just to make it about you or make you feel good about yourself. Uh, A loving pastor, a shepherd, one who's preaching the scriptures will warn you. And these are warnings that Paul gives. Now he's giving them to those who uh, desire to continue on in following Jesus. He's not being a mean, hateful, invective street preacher out there talking down to people who don't know Jesus. But he's telling you as a follower of Jesus that within you, and you know it's true, within you there are warring factions, right? We oftentimes say, you know, a demon on this shoulder, uh, an angel on this one. But there, are, there is within you warring factions. Romans 7, one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible because it just it speaks to us. There are things that I want to do, I don't do them. There are things that I don't want to do, doggone it, he doesn't say that. But I'm doing those things, Romans 7. What a wretched man am I. But then he points us to Romans 8, 1. There is therefore no more condemnation. Isn't that just like Paul? Isn't that just like a human being? Isn't that just like you? Man, I'm wretched. Oh, there's no more condemnation. Like you, you have that within you. You have those voices and they're competing and they're contrasting. There's the flesh within you and it is waging. Let me tell you, it is waging. But there is within you, there is within you the life of the Spirit that can be so wholly different. It can be so integrated and so good and so consistent, so magnetic. But because of the flesh, because of you being beat down by past defeats, you're not able to think about this life in the Spirit. Now, that's a, that's a long list. How many of you like lists? Like, I've built to resist lists. Some of you, you love lists. God bless you. We need you around, but uh, you're difficult sometimes. But you love lists, right? You have a to-do list, and, you know, you accomplish something one day, and you look back that night, you see it wasn't on your list, but you write it down, and then you check it off, right? You love lists. And there are lists, but lists, religious lists, we resist that. I think really all of us do. That we, we resist it because lists leave us feeling inadequate. And here's this long list. And I've joked about the, the hateful, mean street preacher outside with the, these vices on a poster board. I've seen that on college campuses that I've worked at in, in Florida and other places. But this, is, this list is important for us to be warned against. And last week in both the 930 and 11, I was able to to kind of delineate the list or systemize it for us a little bit. There is the the first few things that he mentions there. Uh, You know, it has to do um, 
with sexuality. It's our immorality and our impurity and our sensuality. This week, um, a famous football player, uh, Odell Beckham Jr., was um, captured. He didn't think he was going to be captured, but he was on videotape in a hotel room with apparently a joint, allegedly, and apparently some women and some cocaine. And we would say, oh, that's freedom, right? Oh, the, 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 the capti- you know, captivating women and making them do what you want to do in your desires. It's scintillating and it's fun and it draws us. But he's embarrassed by it, and his agent, he's negotiating $20 million with the New York Giants, $20 million per year, but they're trying to clean up the mess. What he thought he was doing and what he was free to do in private has become public. He's embarrassed, and he's ashamed, and he's doing damage control. And look deeper than that. In five years, if not five days from now, he's going to know that those things, that sin can be pleasurable in the moment, but it leads to a dead end. It leads to destruction, not to freedom. And that's why it's important for us to preach the whole gospel and to know that what wages within us is not good for us. God is, he doesn't give us this list to condemn us. He doesn't give us this list because he's against us. In fact, he's actually for us. And as a loving father, he knows what can hurt us. And then in this list, he mentions idolatry and sorcery. He mentions relational conflicts of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, and envy. He goes on to mention a few more, drunkenness, carousing, or orgies, and the like. That to me is a funny expression after what he mentioned, and the like. In other words, a life given to wanton pleasure, a life turned over to just fleshly desires. It's not good for us. It's not healthy for us. And as we've said in this series, particularly last week, what we think can bring us freedom leads us to enslavement, to entrapment. And it's just not good for us. And so to this, we see Paul speaks by contrast of the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice the contrast, notice the language, notice the singular versus plural. It's kind of funny. He says the deeds, or some versions, have the works of the flesh. It's plural. He mentions it, and then it is actually a plurality in his list. But he says the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. No S on that. Fruit of the Spirit. And then he lists these eight virtues these eight traits and I think we'll get there in a moment but Paul is saying it's not a, it's not an error but what Paul is saying is that, that that these are collective virtues we like to think of, of our lives in terms of personality traits well I'm patient but I don't have any self-control or I'm loving but I don't have joy you see how contradictory that is you see how inviting this is and how accurate and right it is you see fruit of the spirit is different than personality traits when, when love is being worked out in your life, you have self-control. You've got more joy. You have patience and gentleness and meekness and all these traits. It really is one fruit with different flavors, my favorite, one of my favorite writers says. And so here is this great contrast between the deeds or works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, because we hate lists and because we don't like preachers to mention a bunch of sins one after the other, I want to say to you what I learned in seminary classes and have taught here before. It's going to sound complicated, but it's really simple. The imperative needs to flow out of the indicative. Okay, the imperative needs to flow out of the indicative. The indicative, will start there, the indicative is what God has done for you. The indicative, we say often, is the gospel. It's one of our values, the first one, gospel enjoyment intentional community prayerful mission gospel enjoyment it's what god has done for you the gospel is a gift and this gift is grace and this gift of grace has to be received and when you receive this gift of grace and it gets deeper in you and you experience it life changes 
I stand before you today not as a professional Christian so much, but as someone who would say, I see, despite my sin and shortcomings, I'm the pastor and my sins are many, but I see the fruit taking place in my life. I see transformation taking place. And here is this promise, that this can be worked in our lives, but we start with the, imper- we start with the indicative of what God has done, and the imperative flows from that. So the indicative of, is what God has done for you, if you're a note taker. The imperative is what you should now do. It's how you should live. There's a great question in early church history. How then shall we live? We start with what's before the therefore. Every speaker has a, has a style. Have you noticed that? If you podcast or come to Fondren Church, I guess you're judging me a little bit. But every speaker, if it's a, someone on a TED Talk or whatever, every speaker and every writer, let's broaden it a little bit, everyone has a style. And Paul had a style. I believe all of his words are divinely inspired. We talked deeper about this when we did a sermon series back in the fall called The Meaning of the Bible. We talked about how it's divine and how it's human. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. It's profitable for t- teaching, for correction for training in righteousness that you may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's divinely inspired, but through this, he uses human authors. And Paul, one of his traits, one of his styles of his, um, in his genre as he writes epistles is he'll spend the first few chapters mostly talking about what God has done for us in Jesus. Here is what he has done. And then he gives a bunch of instructions on practical living. The, he starts with the indicative, what God has done, and then he ends, if you will, with the imperative, how we should live, how we should work this out. And when we get that out of order, we're in trouble. Now, I don't believe that following Jesus is sequential and linear and not messy. In fact, I think it's just the opposite. But I do think that you and I, we have to get this right, or we're going to be a bunch of religious legalists. We're going to be a bunch of people that nobody wants to be around because we think, ah, Here's a bad list. Here's a good list. We can't do the stuff on the bad list. We need to do the stuff on the good list, but I'm doing the stuff on the bad. I'm not doing the stuff on the good. Oh, and it is just, we've, we've gotten it out of order. So we start with the indicative of what he has done. And then out of what he has done for us, right, we respond rightly. This is how we respond. It's called grace. And we respond. We've been given his grace. As we experience it, we extend it. We extend it to other people. Now, in this passage, it's important to note, and I I think I said this last week, that uh, of this list of 15 to 16 fleshly desires that wage war in your soul that pull you down, that eight of them are relational in nature. And then to add layers to that, he says, hey, don't be conceited. Don't live your life provoking and envying one another. Now, provoking is it's it's when you feel superior to other people okay don't be conceited provoking other people it's when you think that you're more moral when you have a better family when you have nicer things when your life is better than other people's then you're you're living that way you're projecting that whether you know it or not you're conceited and you're provoking other people and the opposite end of the coin is when we envy others. It's not a superiority complex. It's an, infer- it's an infer- inferior complex where we think that way, where we think, hey, I envy other people. They have what I don't have. And what both have in common, provoking and envying, what they have in common is that we operate out of relational emptiness. We are looking for other people to validate us. 
And what the gospel does, we learn in Galatians, is it does a few things. First of all, it humbles us. You ought not to think more highly of yourself than you are. You're not better than anybody else. Just nod if you at least want to give intellectual assent. That you're, you're not better than anybody else. That's what the gospel teaches to you. And that's what the church ought to be about. It humbles us. It also, it, it centers us. It centers us in this idea that we ought to be redirected. We ought to be serving other people. We don't have to look to others for glory, for distinctiveness in our lives. We don't have to worry about who's better or who's worse. We realize that we're all the same. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and we all need this saving power of God's grace. We're all stuck in water without the power to get up and to get going. We need to be rescued. We need his power. We need who he who he is. And so into this, I want you to understand, and I mentioned this when we read the verses from the screen, Paul gives this fleshly list, and he says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what that's not. It doesn't mean if you do one of these things, you're going to hell. That's not what this is about. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and he's talking about an unrepentant one. He's talking about not, um, you know, giving in to some of these things occasionally he's talking about if that is what your life is about you are not going to experience the kingdom so don't misinterpret that there's a harshness that we put into this that uh, it's not intended to be there but we see then this invitation it's what i want to give you today i hope it's the joyful part of the sermon but it's the part where we say that you can live with a new power you can live life in the spirit you can have that he can uh, empower you. Now, in this passage, it talks about walking in the Spirit, being in step with Him. Occasionally in the Bible, it says that we are to run. We are to run a race, 1 Corinthians 9. The same writer Paul talks about running the race, running it to win with our eyes on the prize. And we have to, as it says in Hebrews, lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us as we run. But for the most part, for the most part, this life in the Spirit is walking. In other words, one foot in front of the other consistently and daily walking with him. A long time ago, Jesus likened life in the Spirit to water. Now before we mention this and I show you a picture inside a passage, I want to give you just a little bit of history and context. A big thing, in fact, it was considered to be the most joyful moment for the Jewish people in that day. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, the chief priest would take um, this item, this earthly item, and they would, uh, they would take it, this golden uh, vase, and they would, they would parade it up to the temple and into, the, into uh, the water, and it would be like this celebration. It was much more than just a parade. It was actually a picture of the future of a God who would provide. He would provide water for his people, and if the people in this desert land have water, then they have life. And in the midst of this, Jesus stood up. And you know, we were there uh, just a few weeks ago. We stood in some of these very places where Jesus walked. And we were at this place where this story happened. And Jesus, this early rabbi, stood up. And into this, um, into this Feast of Tabernacles, he spoke these words, If anyone is thirsty, let him come after me. Let him come to me, and I will give him water. It's a living water. And out of his belly, the King James says, we don't often cite the King James, but I like that translation. Out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. 
Now here is that, I want to show you something really cool. This, this was us um, at the pool here where this story, where this passage, where this um, quote, where Jesus uttered these words. Isn't this great in John 7, let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water flow from within him, John 7. And look to the right. There's a park ranger who put up this sign, water not for drink. Isn't that great? Like that's just too good not to show in church. There's Jesus' invitation of you can come to me and you can drink this living water, you'll never thirst again. And then there's man, probably with some lawyers around him, who had to put up a sign, hey, don't drink this, right? Isn't that just like life? And doesn't that, in a way, ironically show us our limits? But when Jesus talks about waters that flow, he's talking about rivers of living water. Do you know that rivers are mentioned over 150 times in 50 times in scripture most times it signifies spiritual life at the beginning of the bible a river is mentioned in the garden of eden genesis 2:10. a river watering the garden flowed from eden and there's a garden at the end revelation 22 here's what it says then the angel showed me what the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of what? The river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree, I love this, are for the healing of the nations. That's at the very end of the book. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And he desires the healing of all nations. And he desires to flow in us. He desires to flow in us and through us like a river. And that our lives as we bear fruit that we would be for the healing of the nations. In Golan Heights, in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, in South Central Los Angeles, in Pearl, Mississippi, right here in the heart of Jackson, in, in, in the big cities, in the depressed areas, in the affluent suburbs, in the skyscrapers and in the slums, it is his desire to be for us the healing of the nations. A river is in many ways because it flows better than a lake and certainly better than a swamp. And the river gets better. The river was beautiful as God intended in the garden, Genesis 2, but it gets even better at the end, Revelation 22. And that's what God wants to do. And he wants to use you to bring about the healing of the nations. Here's a picture of another place we went, more picturesque. This is Masada. Hollywood made a movie about this. It's on my to-watch-soon list at home. This is located in the southern part of Israel on the eastern edge of the Judean desert overlooking the Dead Sea. If you look closely to your top left, you can see the Dead Sea that I floated on a few weeks ago, literally floated. And in this um, place, it's really important. The, the, the Jewish writer... The credible, famous Josephus writes about writes very stirringly about the history of this place. This was at one point King's, King Herod's palace. And he writes about the Roman battering ramp, the, the troops of the Roman army. They came and they conquered and they ended the Jewish-Roman war. It's palatial. The, the scenery is unbelievable. We enjoyed a few hours there. Thank God for cable cars. We made it up there. I would have been fine, but others in my group were, were kind of frail. But we enjoyed the view, and we learned of its history. 
And as I sat there in a moment of reflection, thinking about this place of stunning beauty, the cradle of civilization, the oldest place in the world, and also the lowest point. There are the dead seats, the lowest point on planet Earth. But yet this vista, this stunning rock plateau. And I thought of the history there, and I thought of a psalmist who wrote before Jesus came. And some of you know this, we've in America turned it into a pretty popular worship song, but in Psalm 42 it says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. And our image in America is wrong. We get a lot of things wrong, but our image in America is wrong. We picture a Bambi deer walking through a leafy green, stream-laden, lush forest, and he's just slightly, mildly parched. And he's, he, there's his water right there. But you look, and I, I learned at Masada, I learned, I was reminded of the desert regions, the dominant desert regions in Israel. You know how often that it rains there? Two days a year. Two days a year. Hard to imagine on days like today, right? And weeks like we're having a lot of rain, a lot more to come this week. But this is a desert region. With two days of rain, how could they build a palace so palatial? Why would a king, King Herod, choose this? We get the view, right? The view is stunning. But how can you have some 900 people, Josephus writes about, at a place like this when it rains twice a year? Well, they had aqueducts. They didn't spend time watching TV and a lot of time on social media. They worked and they hustled. But they built aqueducts so that the rain from the nearest more rainy region could flow in and they built cisterns we got to see some of these cisterns just big pools some of them about the size of the sanctuary where they would capture water and keep it not only did they need water of course for drinking you need water uh, more frequently than you need food you know this but they had ritual baths in jewish culture ritual baths were very big a very uh, regular part twice daily of their lives for cleaning for ritualistic purposes and they needed this water and so they had to have a sea aqueducts and cisterns to capture this as the deer pants for the water so my soul longs for you these words meant more to them than they do to us rain is plentiful right now where we live and you can turn on a faucet and get what you need but jesus was talking about water but not talking about water he was talking about himself and inviting you to come to him to quench your thirst. You remember how we said imperatives flow out of indicatives? You see, when I come to Jesus and I drink from him, when he satisfies my soul, sin doesn't look so good. In fact, let me be honest with you, sin looks bad. I'm not as drawn to it. I'm more apt to be able to overcome temptation and stay away from the flesh that wages war within me. And God looks good when I'm finding my satisfaction in who he is. Who he is, what he provides, and even waiting. As I find my satisfaction in him, even waiting can be a good thing. To be able to trust him in those difficult times. Uh, many years ago when one of our kids was little, I won't say who, but uh, he was uh, three years old. And he was sitting on the floor uh, ne next to the kitchen, the dining room. He was on the floor, crisscross applesauce, just sitting there like a three-year-old, had his elbows on his legs, and he was looking up at his mom and his dad, and his request was, 
he, he asked us if he could pour milk into his glass. And on the counter was an empty glass and a full gallon of milk. He was so set on it, we said yes. Don't cry over spilled milk. I think it says that in the Bible somewhere. And he took this, this full gallon container and he turned it over the glass of milk and the milk just gushed into the glass it got to the top of the lid the milk crowned it wonder of wonders not a drop was spilled gloria in excelsior right and then he he excitedly moved the full glass from the counter to the table bumping both the counter and the table and the spill was tremendous listen to me when you bump into something what spills out of you reveals what is inside of you and when this writer paul in galatians and other places talked about the spirit-filled life it wasn't some mystical thing that you can never figure out but he's saying and uses phrases like abundant and overflowing abundant and overflowing that doesn't mean you're not going to feel dry and arid and parched like a desert because we got to go through seasons, don't we? But even, even then, God can really be real to you. He can overflow in you and spill out of you. And I wonder today, what is inside of you? When you're bumped, what spills out of you reveals what is inside of you. Is it the fruit of the Spirit? Is it what God desires to produce in you? Now hear me, this is immensely practical to your life. Affecting your home, affecting your heart, affecting your marriage, affecting parenting, affecting your work life Monday through Friday and beyond. Affecting everything about you, even your sanity and your peace of mind and your future. Everything. It's immensely practical in the day-to-day. How you conduct yourself, your list or your not list, your, the way you eat and drink the way you conduct your business, everything. But it is a spiritual endeavor. I stood at this very place last night. We did another wedding here, and I reminded the couple that their marriage is not going to be lived out on a romantic balcony, but on a spiritual battleground. And so is your life. And it is immensely spiritual. There's an old Ethiopian proverb that says that fish are the last ones to learn about the water. What in the world? Fish is the last one to learn, really learn about the water. You see, for a fish, the water is not distant, it's ubiquitous, it's ever-present, it is there for them. And could it be that as water is to a fish, so God is to you? Spirit, closer than your skin, and the struggle that you are having is not so much that God is distant, but that you have been always been dependent on Him. He's always been present. He breathed life into us. We miss Him because He's so ubiquitous, so ever-present. We're so dependent on Him. And the key to the spiritual life is learning to recognize Him. I have a friend his name is Sean. You don't know him. Many years ago, he told me his story in multiple parts. And as we got deeper into Sean's story, he told me about the type of home that he grew up in. 
His mom and his dad hated each other so much. It was so fierce and intense that they refused to even speak to each other for years. But for financial reasons, neither one was willing to move out of the house. So here's Sean as a little boy, as if his parents couldn't hear each other. Sean, tell your mother. Sean, tell that old man. Tell him this. Two people, no physical distance separating them, but they were planets apart. And on the other side of that, there can be this connection in the universe. Quantum physicists talk about it. Where two entangled particles can be a universe apart, but they can share a connection so odd and strange and mysterious that it's faster than the speed of light. Just referencing some quantum physicists here. Could it be true? You know it's true. It's a mother whose son is on a foreign battlefield. It's someone who has a best friend all the way across the world in an intense battle for their lives with cancer. The other side of the coin is true. Yes, you can be physically present with someone and not experience them at all, and you can be miles apart with physical distance, but have a connection so mysterious and so strong, it's faster than the speed of light. You're a spiritual being. You're having a human experience. You're in our fleshly, earthly tent that's for most of us will last 70, 80, 90 years. If you're Mavis, my grandmother, you're going on 100 and going strong. But it's going to wear out. But at, at the core of who you are, you are spirit, you are soul, you are a spiritual being. And God desires for you to experience him and to walk spiritually and to walk in step with him. God is spirit and desires to fill you. He desires to empower you. He does. So how? As I close, how? How can we walk in the Spirit? Notice the order here. This is important. He doesn't say, fight off the sins of the flesh in your effort, and then you'll be filled with the Spirit. He says, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and like a tree by a river, by a stream, you'll be nourished by the source of life. And then you'll have the strength. This thing that you've been trying to do in your own effort, you can do it by abiding in me. And so while it is on one hand this very spiritual experience, it is so practical. How do you abide? How do you walk in the Spirit? You can have a close relationship with God in the same way that you can have a close relationship with another human being. It's messy. Relationships are messy. You notice that? They're sometimes seasonal. It requires time and effort. It's a relationship of, that is reciprocal in nature. It's fueled by love. And it's possible for everyone. In this relationship, you can you cannot experience it just the same way as you cannot experience a relationship with another human being. You cannot be present with them or you can be present with them and not fully present with them. You don't really listen to them remember the prophet samuel speak lord for your servant is listening you're tuned in sometimes at our house this is one of our bad traits we'll say huh 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 what huh if we're not careful we're saying it all the time it's like well, are you in the same room are you listening to me like are you tuned in are you on something else 
To walk in the Spirit is to be tuned in. You don't always have to go, ha ha, God, what, ha ha? Like you are listening and you're doing something. When He tells you to do something, you do it. This week I had a difficult conversation with somebody and there was emotion. It drained me. Y'all know I love people. Every time I get with people, like I get energy. Like I'm, I wake up, I'm like a balloon that's deflated. And then I start spending time with people and the balloon's getting heavier and a bit fuller and more of like that. That's me. Like Susan wakes up, she's a full balloon. And then throughout the day, she just starts getting deflated, right? Like God, that's the way we are. You're, you're probably like her or some of you are like me. But man, I had this difficult conversation. And why did I do it? Because, because the Spirit wanted me to. We have neighbors who a couple of years ago, they, uh, they went away for almost a whole summer and they let their dog go to a, a summer camp. And when they came back, they had a new canine, just a totally different creature. And every command that, he would, that they would give him, he would, he would give a prompt, unwavering, wholehearted, eager obedience to that. Every single time. It was like summer camp reform school for dogs, right? Don't you wish, listen, here's my question as we close, don't you wish that people had that? Like we could send some of you away and then we could give you a command and you would be prompt and obedient and eager and wholehearted and unwavering in doing what we wanted to do. And here's what I want to say to you. We learned this in Galatians because it gives us some of those one another's. It says love one another and serve one another, but it doesn't say fix one another. And almost everybody in the room's got somebody they want to fix. God help our marriages, let me tell you. God help our marriages. And God help our parenting. But there is no command that says fix one another. But there is a command that says love one another and serve one another in Galatians, Galatians 5, and also to pray for one another. Let me pray for us now.